Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. We are coming to you live on a Friday night for the first time in a couple of weeks. So if you've been keeping up with our shows, we've been pre-recording for a few weeks because we've been on vacation and schedules and all that. But coming to you live tonight, and we're going to go over some news because since I was on vacation, I didn't have enough time to catch up on all the news. So did a little bit of news searching, and there has been some interesting stuff that we're going to talk about. The first one is CISA released some guidance to all federal agencies to determine their use of basic authentication for. Microsoft Exchange and to tell them to switch to modern auth as soon as possible. So if you don't know, basic authentication is going to be retired on October 1st, 2022. That's this year. And that's important because basic auth is an HTTP based authentication scheme that's used by apps to send credentials in plain text to servers, endpoints, and online services. So being security professionals, we know that clear text credentials is never a good thing. Modern authentication or OAuth 2.0 token-based authentication has access tokens that are limited lifetime and they cannot be reused to authenticate to other resources. So modern auth is much, much better. So, you know, you definitely need to take a look and see if you are still using basic authentication for anything in your organization. You can do that pretty easily through Azure Active Directory sign-in logs by going through the sign-in logs, applying a filter, to the client app and then selecting everything that's grouped under legacy authentication clients. There's also an Azure AD workbook that's built in and it's called sign-ins using legacy authentication. We'll put the link in our show notes with the documentation for it, but it is a built-in workbook. So you can just look under Azure AD workbooks and then it's called the legacy authentication. And that'll show you if you're having anything authenticate to your Exchange Online environment using the basic authentication. And you might be surprised surprised at how much is actually doing basic authentication. So if you do have that, you can drill down to the logs, see who it is, what accounts, what apps they're using, and maybe give them a heads up. Say, hey, this is going to be retired in October. You can also block legacy authentication using a conditional access policy. So that's fairly simple. I can put the documentation in there, but essentially you're just going through selecting the client type and saying that only modern authentication or browsers or desktop apps are available, the legacy auth or basic authentication is not allowed. So that's a fairly simple conditional access policy that you can build. Any thoughts on that, Adam? Absolutely. So this date of getting turned off, like I feel like anytime we're talking about anything at Microsoft that's going to get like disabled or there's like a due date or something's going to happen, there's a certain group of people who like to play the game of chicken and assume it will be extended. So this has been extended already multiple times due to the pandemic and customers saying they had other priorities. This is really a big deal. Basic authentication is a major concern because 
realize you can set up all of these great conditional access policies that you need to use a managed device and the device has to be healthy and, and the EDR risk has to be low and the configuration must be good and the identity risk score must be low and the user risk score must be low. Blah, blah, blah. You're performing multi-factor authentication. And if you have basic auth enabled, all I need is single factor authentication and I walk in. It's like a, an unlocked back door to your Exchange Online environment. Now, the thing is, there's really good logging to determine when it's being used. And conditional access can be a great tool to lock down and limit where it can be used. Now, at this point, three months out from retirement, again, that's still three months more protection, but your goal should really be to find the services that are using basic auth and get them to use something else, right? Modernize them. However, as long as you're going through that exercise, it may still be worthwhile if you have something that you're not ready to turn off yet in basic auth to at least write a conditional access policy that restricts that to, for example, only these IP ranges originating from your corporate network or something like that. Like basic auth can't be used in any other scenario. So this is a conversation I've been talking about for years and years and years as a identity technical specialist and many other security roles at Microsoft. The end is near and this is a good thing. This is a rising tide lifts all ships in terms of security. And this may be painful to get done, but I know at a lot of organizations, sometimes having an external deadline helps muster internal resources to move faster. And so when you basically have July, August, September to get this done, 90 days at this point, and if you need to create that sense of urgency, now you can do it. And again, I would caution anyone listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube of playing that game of chicken and thinking this will be extended again. This has been extended multiple times. And although I don't work for that product group, I have no reason to suspect this will be extended again. So take this seriously. Get this done. It is better for you and your security posture and all org security posture in the long run. Very good. A few weeks ago, we had a patching episode and we talked about, you know, how many zero days have been going on for the last few years and how there was a rise in zero days. Google's Project Zero has been tracking them and just giving you an update for 2022. At this point, we're halfway through the year. There's only actually been 18 zero days so far, affecting a wide range of platforms, including Apple iOS, Atlassian Confluence, Chromium, Google Pixel, Linux, WebKit, and of course, Windows. But it is definitely short of the trajectory of last year's 80 zero days. But of course, the year's not done, so there's still plenty of time to find more zero days. But just saying, I'm a little bit surprised. Maybe we're just getting better at programming and people are building that AppSec into their products nowadays. And, and so that even if we're looking harder, we're not finding as many zero days, but that still doesn't mean that zero days aren't going away. And so, you know, I found another article that talked about how zero days are a concern and what should organizations do? And reading through it, it basically, I'm, I'm not going to rehash everything in it, but it basically talked about patching and threat intel are two of the greatest defense against zero days but also monitoring because when there is an exploit or a zero day discovered in the wild and threat feeds are seeing like GitHub's putting out you know ways to exploit or test these zero days, the software developers will patch them. And so obviously patching and keeping up on that is going to be huge. But then if there are actual zero days that are being exploited that nobody knows about, then monitoring is actually going to be one of the biggest defenses. And that is a lot more difficult for for organizations who are less mature in their security, especially organizations that haven't invested in people. I think 
having hands-on keyboards and that human element, being able to monitor the systems, like having the tools deployed is one thing, but oftentimes a lot of organizations will deploy the tools, but not have enough people to respond or look at the alerts. And I think that is key to, you know, having a good mature cybersecurity organization, that operations center if you will. So I just wanted to touch on that for zero days and just kind of make sure that, you know, number one, obviously continue patching and the threat intelligence that we've talked about in our previous conversations, but monitoring as well. And then making sure that you have, you know, the correct headcount for your organization. Then this other article that I came across was really interesting because it said cyber attacks in unpatched systems are actually costing organizations more than phishing. So it said attackers are continuing to find success targeting unpatched servers and vulnerable remote access systems and that these type of compromises are costing victim organizations 54 percent more than compromises caused by user actions like failing on phishing or opening malicious documents i thought that was super interesting because we've often talked about the main vector of attack is generally phishing in an email but in this particular report done by the security firm tetra defense they found that unpatched systems actually were a higher vector of attack than phishing. And they said that from incident data from the first quarter, unpatched vulnerabilities and exposing risky services like remote desktop protocol account for 82% of successful attacks, while social engineering employees only took about 18% of the compromises. Out of all the different sectors that were attacked, healthcare was at the top of the list. 20% of compromised organizations were in healthcare. Finance and education were tied at 13% and manufacturing was 12%. So I thought those are some interesting numbers. We haven't talked too much about cloud configurations and cloud security posture management, which is often a common form of vulnerability. But in their particular research, Tetra Defense didn't see that misconfigurations accounted for much of the breaches, which I thought was also interesting. It's obviously a a fairly newer portion of security and not many orgs are focused on that. But I think that's going to be a major vector of attack in the future because as organizations are migrating, you know, their on-prem servers to the cloud, you know, exposing services, you know, that should be another area of concern. So Andy, we talked about this in the pre-show before we went on the air about this report and that headline, you know, it's an attention grabber. Cyber attacks via unpatched systems cost orgs more than phishing. Okay, you got my attention. Because you're right, we do tend to assume that that initial compromise is almost always through some sort of phishing attack. And we talked on this show a couple weeks ago now about some phishing tests, you know, internal phishing exercises that had been really called out as being inhumane or unfair to employees. And we talked through that again. So, you know, go back just a couple of weeks on the episode titled Don't Fish Me, Bro, uh, which by the way, I love that title. Uh, and we talked about how friend of the show, Christina Murillo had tweeted and said, you know, really today with a lot of the modern defense in depth and identity protections we have, the hardcore focus on phishing exercises is like a sole method of protecting against phishing is becoming somewhat outdated. And this makes sense when you think of the broad scheme of security and securing anything, you know, not just information systems, but physical domains, you know, airplanes, etc. We always tend to swarm towards protecting against like a known attack 
vector and becoming ultimately over time, and that takes time, really good at protecting against that attack vector. And so this has been pretty slow moving for us to start to protect against it. But it would make sense when you look at the broader concept of protecting things in general, that eventually we will reach a point when phishing is less of a concern, right? I mean, that's not going to be the number one method forever because eventually we will get our tools good enough to really prevent against that being a useful vector of attack. We're already starting to get there with multi-factor authentication, with zero trust network architectures, with really robust uh, zero day protection in email, security email gateways, et cetera, et cetera. We have pretty good tools in place if you put them all together. The problem is, you know, a lot of those are disparate tools and they don't share information or whatever. But the point I'm going with this is I think we'll see more headlines like this over time because again, I think there will be that shift and that's where the next phases are going to come in. Patching is another thing that we know. It's like basic hygiene that a lot of places doesn't get done effectively. And we know, and maybe it's not there yet based on the data from at least Tetra Defense, but eventually misconfiguration is going to be a concern as well. I mean, there have been many pretty famous attacks that have been the result of misconfiguration. Um, Already recently in the last two years, you know, you can think of several examples where something was misconfigured to be pretty wide open and the attackers just walked in. And so it wasn't a phishing exercise, you know, it wasn't a phishing, it wasn't a zero day, it wasn't a vulnerability, it wasn't unpatched, it was misconfiguration. So it's a never ending, you know, battle, right? And our targets are going to shift over time. But gosh, we've been banging the drum on phishing as a problem for a decade, two decades um, in information security. Eventually, we're going to figure that out. Like, um, and not to say it'll go away entirely, but it will become less of a concern. And I feel like we are starting to hit that inflection point. And so maybe that's the bigger takeaway from this as opposed to, you know, getting too high or low on the headline or saying, oh, well, that's conflicting data because other people still say that's the primary vector. Eventually, on an infinite time scale, because we know how this stuff works, that methodology will go away, right? And there'll be new attack vectors to take its place. And I know, you know, Adam has said this uh, statistic that enabling MFA will prevent like 99.9% of your attacks or, or something like that. Tetra Defense found actually that comprehensive patching and MFA could have prevented about 80% of their investigated incidents. So that is two of the basic things. I remember uh, when I was working at my previous company and my boss, Doug Turchek, who was on the show previously, I always asked him like what he was focused on. And he said the basics, patching and the very simple things that we need to do because if we can do those well for the most part we can mitigate a lot of the incidents that are happening so look to having a good patching program make sure that you're implementing mfa and that included like vpns that did not have mfa on it so that is obviously uh, we've talked about how vpn should go away and, and you should use some of the more modern types of either where you're storing the data or using a, a more modern type of vpn where you're not using a, a split tunnel or getting access to the entire network. So that was in Tetris Defense's uh, report. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing was um, they also talked about how ransomware is still a thing. The incident response from CrowdStrike released its annual report on incident data and they showed that the ransomware attacks had grown by 82%. In addition to the company's data, it showed that malware had only been used in 38% of the successful intrusions where 45% of the attacks were manually conducted or otherwise known as human operated ransomware and so oftentimes people think that it's you know some link that you clicked on or it's some malware that you downloaded but in this case the attackers were finding vulnerabilities either on misconfigured systems or just patches that you have not deployed and your systems are vulnerable to an exploit that has been publicly disclosed
exposed and patched by a vendor, but you just haven't applied that. And so they found it, they got their way in, and that's how they deployed the ransomware. So human operating ransomware is someone actually doing that deployment manually and launching it after they've already compromised your system. So that is more than just the automated, you know, pray and spray, send a bunch of emails, links, malicious files, all of that. So keep that in mind. I just have to jump in there on that point, Andy, because 38% were that spray and pray kind of technique, which used to be assumed was really effective and 45% human operated ransomware, which I know is a conversation in our day jobs, we're having a lot of right now. And human operated ransomware is scary stuff because if you have a talented attacker, you know, they're going to probe for weaknesses and they're going to look for them and they're going to find them. And that's where you have to be buttoned up across the board. You know, your phishing exercises won't save you there. That's where your configurations have to be tight. Your patching has to be tight. Your identity posture has to be strong. All those things have to be in place or they will find a weakness and they will exploit it. And that basically gets to like, there isn't a silver bullet. It's having a holistic approach is really the only way to protect against that. You have to protect everything equally effectively. And I think security organizations, in my experience, to me, a lot of it still feels like people think it's paint by numbers. You go get Proofpoint, you go get CrowdStrike and you go stand those up and maybe you go get Palo Alto for a thing or two and you know you bring in like Netscope for your CASB and good you're doing best of breed just like the guy down the street congratulations and uh, you're going to do you're going to get Okta for your IDP and you're going to do all these things and if you're not focusing on still that basic hygiene those basics you know those human operated ransomware it's going to find a way in because that's what they do so that's concerning which I think kind of is an interesting dovetail into our last subject of the evening because we talk about like how scary and difficult this is and like how the problem is only getting more complex and then we go talk through the people challenges of of the people who are defending this right yeah we had talked about earlier today just about investing in people right and having that human element and and hands-on keyboard but i read this article that was very concerning for me as well as it, it hit home a little bit because you know i've been internal security at a company i understand the stress and the study you know they went and looked at 521 security decision makers and this number 95 percent of them these are security decision makers, leaders in the industry, said that they were experiencing factors that would make them likely to leave their role in the next 12 months. That to me is shocking. I mean, that's nearly all of them said that they were going to change jobs in the next 12 months due to something. It was different for many of them. About 42% felt a breach was inevitable and they did not want their career tarnished by that. 40% said that they were experiencing stress and burnout, which was impacting their personal life. And so that was the majority of it. You know, I, I have mixed feelings about this because I don't think... CISOs and leaders should be blamed for breaches. You know, we've talked many times on how breaches are inevitable. If you are targeted or you don't have the right resources, you know, oftentimes it's a business decision on funding or using different applications that may be insecure and leaders are accepting the risk, even though the security org is telling them that it is a risk. So I just think they shouldn't feel like it. You know, I think as part of being in the security community, being a part of a 
breach shouldn't be a tarnish on your career. It certainly isn't a tarnish on a lot of people's careers if they, say, run a company that loses money or goes bankrupt. I think they're still employable. But anyways, that's just some personal thoughts on that. People leaving, obviously, is really problematic in this day and age because the attacks have just gotten worse. Over two-thirds of the cyber leaders said that the volume of threats and successful attacks have increased over the past year, and 69% say it's harder to detect and respond to those threats. And of course, there's an ongoing skill shortage as well. It's harder to recruit the right people. Four in 10 say they don't currently have the skills to monitor the security threats in the cloud. 31% say they don't have the right skills needed to run a modern security operations center. And 28% believe they don't have the right skills to secure a remote environment. So all across the board, people are feeling burnout and they don't have enough people to do the job. And the reasons for leaving too, I thought this was interesting. Among the senior level or the C-suite, they're more likely to feel fear that tarnish of their careers. Whereas like the director levels are more stress and burnout. Heads of departments and managers are more like, you know, unrealistic expectations and pay. And so that to me says people are different. And so you got to find out what makes them tick and, and what drives them. And that could be a lot of different things, right? Like things that can help PTO, make sure that your people are taking PTO. And when they do take PTO, man, I, I have talked to some friends where their managers just say, you know, you need to have your email ready. You need to have your phone on you. You need to be in a spot where you have reception so that even if you're on vacation, you can respond to things. And I think that is terrible. Like in this day and age, if you take PTO, you should, you know, do what you can. Uninstall email from your phone or Teams or unenroll it. Just you can come back and re-enroll it or turn off your notifications. I think for people, you know, benefits at an org, like make sure that you have training. Obviously, training is a huge thing. Budget for it. Make sure if your people are asking for it, that you approve it. You know, make it a priority. People sometimes think like, hey, if I train them, what if they leave? Well, what if you don't train them and they stay? That's the question that I would ask. What you're seeing is that you're having orgs that don't have the right people. So assume they're going to stay, hope that they stay, train them. Obviously do a pay evaluation. Pay over the last two years with the pandemic has changed significantly. So do a pay evaluation and, and bump them up if you know you can. Because what I hate to see, which happens all the time, is you get a senior person who's been at that organization who say started at a certain pay and has just gotten that two and a half, three percent pay over the few years. And all of a sudden you get this new guy who starts 20% higher because that's what the pay is now. And then your, your senior guy who's you know put in the time is getting paid less than the new guy who just came in. So you should reevaluate, re-equalize the pay. And then finally, you know, we've talked a lot about incident response, but having a good incident response plan because in reality a breach is going to happen, right? Like if you're targeted, it's going to happen. So having a good incident response plan may take some of that stress off and just know that, hey, we got this, you know, we can work through it. We understand it's about the speed of how we respond and how fast we can get them out of our network versus like worrying about and stressing about that breach. You just accept that it is going to happen, but have a good plan to resolve it quickly. So those are my thoughts on that. You know, I think this is an industry-wide issue and certainly it may get worse before it gets better. You know, there's articles that always feel like they can be written almost Mad Lib style. And to use an analogy, I'll go to like local TV news. You know, 
local TV news, there's certain reports they do that honestly feel like they could record them once and then just replay them. Like the one whenever gas prices go up where they go interview drivers at the gas pump and ask them how they think about the high gas prices. Or when there's a snowstorm and they stand outside and say, it's snowing. You know, like it feels like with cybersecurity, you don't have to look very hard to find an article where it's talking about the challenges with hiring talent, training and creating new talent, retaining talent, people wanting to leave the industry. It's a hard business. It's super hard. And it's rewarding too, but man, is it difficult. And it does feel like in some ways we are reaching that inflection point where some of these things are actually getting better. So I almost think 42% feel a breach is inevitable and do not want to tarnish their career. Like I see that as a good number because I think three, four years ago, I bet that number was 75%. People were much more concerned about like, oh, you know, if you're a CISO, you know, it's chief information scapegoat officer. You know, you're the one who gets canned when you get breached. And like, it's starting to evolve where people understand like, hey, if we're the business and we accept this risk and that risk comes to pass, like we accepted that risk and we need to deal with the fallout of that. And if you're doing your job correctly and you're articulating the risk and making sure that the right decision makers are accepting that risk, then that's how that conversation should go. Risk is endemic in business and sometimes risks come to pass. And so I think in some ways that's better. Stress and burnout, I think are challenging in a lot of places right now. I will say for me personally, as someone who had a role that involved not a ton of travel, but some, and certainly involved working with people, going to people's offices or hosting them at our facility and shaking hands and meeting people in person. The pandemic was really hard, but what was hard about it wasn't so much like just not being able to be around people because I'm I'm actually an introvert by nature, although I like being around people. What actually happened in my experience was that something that got talked about a lot is that people started being more productive. There was more work output. And so in particular, a lot of my work comes from people who actually have much more people-facing jobs traditionally, account executives who are salespeople. And so when they were locked up in their homes, sitting on email all day, and they're conversing with executives at other companies who sit in their homes and were banging out email all day, it created a snowball effect of work that rolled downhill. And so one of the things we're still wrestling with from the pandemic, you know, a couple years in now, is once people get accustomed to a higher level of productivity and organizations get used to it, they don't want to see that dial back. Now, I will say for me personally, having people get out in the world again has actually made my workload more manageable and made my job more pleasurable. So I feel like I'm coming out of a two-year stretch of really miserable, I don't want to say miserable, but really tough work. And I feel like it's getting better. Now, cybersecurity is obviously a very different business. I get that. But I think we are still dealing with a reckoning of what is an appropriate amount of productivity to expect from our people. And are people working too much? Are they having work bleed into their personal lives too much? For a lot of people, they're still wrestling with that and what work from home means in that sense. And I know a lot of people are back in the office. I know a lot of people are not. And so not to say that the cyber threats haven't grown because they have. And that's a large reason why security people are having more work and feeling more burnout. But I still think a part of it too, is that we still have not figured out how to be good at work from home. Just because a lot of people have been doing it from two years, I think we all stink at it. I think we're really bad at setting boundaries and barriers and taking time off and creating separation from work in our lives. And I think especially in security,
security where it's a mission that feels like a purpose and it attracts people who think that way, it's really hard to let it go and to be able to disconnect for the night and come back to it tomorrow. They want to solve this problem. They want to drain this queue. They want to solve these tickets. And I think, again, part of this is we're still working on that. And so I think it's not unique to cybersecurity in that sense. I think it's still the challenges of getting this right and figuring out what this looks like. And yes, we've got the skill shortages and we've got misaligned expectations and everything else. And I still think in a, in a lot of ways, the traditional thinking and the traditional security strategy is wrong and creates administrative overhead and all sorts of other knock-on issues that come from that. But ultimately, I think a lot of it is still two years later. It's it's pandemic pain. And Andy, I think you touched on all the right things that can help. Investing in training, making sure people actually take time off and separate from work, evaluating pay. Every org should be reevaluating pay right now. People are making less money than they did before for the same work. That's just a fact at this point. And so if you're not helping them feel like they're keeping up, they're going to go to an org that helps them feel that. And maybe if they can do that while putting in less hours, bonus. And I like to call it an incident response too. It always helps to have a plan and to know what that plan is and execute the plan as opposed to running around trying to figure out what to do. And we talk about things like assume breach and that mindset. Well, that comes from that. We are going to have a breach. What is our plan to deal with that? And here's how we're not going to fire everybody. We're not going to let everybody go. Here's how we're going to learn and grow from that. And you look at, take for example, another friend of the show, Gavin Ashton, who very famously worked at Maersk during a major ransomware incident that completely shut them down. And Gavin blogged about it and wrote about it and used that to build and develop his career to take those learnings from that incident. And today, not to say this is like the the, you know, the pinnacle of everyone's career, but he works for Microsoft today. He's an identity cloud solution architect, I think is his current role. I don't even know what he's doing now, but he's doing great work. And it all started by going through a very, very bad situation and learning a ton from it in a short period of time. And so there's a way, if you calibrate your mind around it, again, not that we want them to happen or we want to act like it's inevitable and we shouldn't try to prevent them, but if we treat it as let's have a plan to deal with this, this is not fatal to any of us, what does that look like? I think that's really powerful in giving everyone a sense of shared purpose and camaraderie and teamwork that we're working towards a shared goal, um, even when we may fall short individually. And that's just inevitable because the barbarians are at the gate and they have been, and they're only growing in numbers. Man, a lot of what you said, Adam, really rang true for me because I worked remotely prior to going to Exact Sciences, which was my previous job, then coming back to Microsoft. And when I was at Exact Sciences and we went remote because of the pandemic, I thought, hey, I've done this before. I can do it. But in reality, when we were going into the office, there was that commute time to kind of decompress. There was that time in the morning where you went and got your coffee and then you kind of sat around with your teammates and caught up on some stuff and you went and did some work and then you went out to lunch, you know, and you came back and you did some more work and then you had the afternoon break where you caught up on stuff and then, you know, did some more work and you went home, commute and, you know, maybe you get some stuff done, um, take your kids out, some activities, and then you're checking your emails kind of at night uh, because it is security and you're expected to respond to things. And so you're checking those messages and emails and catching up maybe before you go to bed. But all in all, it was kind of a nice spread of work throughout the day with some nice breaks. Mm -hmm. But then when we went to work from home, you know, I got up and went right to work. 
straight you know there was no breaks until maybe lunchtime but even then sometimes not and then you know we were working through the afternoon and maybe i got to go pick up my kids but then after that i'm coming straight home because they had no activities during the pandemic so Mm -hmm. i'm just working straight and then on the weekends too and there's that mindset like like you said like i need to get this particular thing deployed because oh if i don't do it today what if we get breached because of this thing and so you're thinking about it and it was tough i mean it was definitely i i don't even i don't think i did it right um because i was working all the time and so i think what you said is very true that many people are still struggling on how to work from home correctly because we did get even though some companies think that you know bringing people back is more productive i think we did get a higher level of productivity during the pandemic when everyone was work from home and now you know we have to dial it back and it's very difficult to do that but i also don't think that everyone should just go back to the offices because i i do think there is a space for work from home you just need to be able to be more smart about how you take your breaks you know we've talked about this before where i schedule time on my calendar for my lunches every single day and it's just blocked off out of office even though i may just be going upstairs to heat up something or take my dogs on a walk around the block i don't take any meetings during that time and you know people respect that so when people ask i just tell them i'm i'm not available and so i think those are things that can help but yeah i think you're right that we're still struggling on how to figure this whole thing out and there's going to be remote workers going forward i think that's part of the norm now many people are expecting jobs to be remote but part of that is trying to figure out how to manage your time correctly we could do a whole show on that because in all honesty i like having work flexibility and again it's hard not to mix your own personal experience in it but i will just say like i'm an introvert and i still like seeing people i still like getting out in the world and traveling a little bit i don't want to travel a lot but i like traveling a little bit i see like i have a very hard time relating to these people that like literally want to work from home and never meet their colleagues and never like do anything but go walk to their office and sit on a computer nine hours a day and sit on like team or Zoom calls or whatever. Like I can't align with that, me personally. And so I know there are people that just love it and just think it's the greatest thing in the world. But to me, I see it as we are still very early days with figuring it out. And you're right that it's not like the office was the end all be all. But what people get mixed up about the office, and I think what they misunderstand about it is the 40 hour work week is a myth. There is no person out there other than maybe the person who literally sits on a factory floor 40 hours a week who does 40 hours a week of work because that's not how we function. You know, if the more you study this and learn about it, like humans can be really good at like doing bursts of productivity and then they need to rest and like let their brain do other things to charge up for that next burst of productivity. And so those natural breaks that come in during the workday in the office of literally walking to the water cooler or or walking to the convenience store next door or whatever you used to do at your office, like those were actually very, very very helpful at creating an environment where you could do good work. Now, believe me, there are plenty of distractions in the office. I'm again, not completely defending it, but people have a misconception that like those were bad things. And the fact is they weren't like a short commute is very powerful to put your brain in work mode and be ready to go to work and kind of separate from the stresses of the day and get ready to go. And then those natural breaks over the course of the day, I will tell you when I used to work in in the office, my last two office jobs um, where I went in, 
in every day, one of them, we had an on-site Starbucks. And so we used to go mid-morning and walk down there and get a coffee and then sit down there and talk about sometimes work stuff, sometimes non-work stuff, and then go back upstairs and work some more. And it was really powerful. I did that with my boss every day. That's who went with me. Or at a previous job, we used to walk to the convenience store next door and get a soda or a tea or whatever. And it was the same thing, like just getting out, getting some fresh air and moving around a little bit. So powerful. And it's so easy when you get on like back to back to back to back teams calls or whatever, that you don't give yourself a chance to do that. And you can't do meaningful work that way. And so we can solve for this, right? Like we could build in those natural breaks in our schedule, but then it's like, oh, well, Andy's not being a team player because he won't take his block off at 1030 in the morning because that's when he goes for his walk. Like what a wuss Andy is for needing to walk. Like, you know, we need to talk to this customer tomorrow or else like the world's going to end. And it's like, it's not like that, but we're not prepared for that yet. But when we used to do that in the office, that was totally cool. And if the boss or whomever saw that as like, oh, see there, you know, here's them not being productive. Like they don't understand what real productivity looks like, you know? And so again, I don't want to get on a huge tangent here. This is enough of it, but I have thoughts on remote work and the failings of it. And having workplace flexibility is great and I'm all for it and more orgs should embrace it. But I'm not completely dead set against like some org saying like we're an office centric culture. I think they may have hiring challenges in the future, but I actually, and, and this is like me, like not acting like a millennial here at all, but I get that. I really do. And I think part of it's because we just don't have it figured out and it's going to be a journey to figure this out and we need to, but I think it's a lot of where a lot of these challenges are coming and I really, really do. Some good thoughts there. We'll end it for this week, but certainly I think this was a lot for us to talk through and and think about and hopefully you know that kind of stimulates some thoughts in our listeners this week so that's our show thanks for listening and watching as always our contact information will be in the show notes if you guys have any questions or future show topics you want us to talk about thanks and we'll talk to you guys next week thank you for listening to the blue security podcast please check out the show notes catch up on episodes you may have missed and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes find andy on Twitter at AJaw0 and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.